Welcome everyone to Book Club on Unsafe Space Network. I am going to be talking about House of Leaves. And for the for, for the beginning of this, I have a presentation on House of Leaves by Mark Z. Daniel F. Steve because this is my favorite novel. I know a lot of people find it really hard to read. A lot of people don't finish it, but it is actually my favorite novel. So for right now, I'm going to share my screen. Uh, I'm going to move this over here for a moment. Uh, share screen. Hold on. Okay, share. There we go. <laughs> yes. All right. I got it done. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still not quite used to how StreamYard works. So, um, so I made a presentation about House of Leaves. Uh, so to start off, the book is made up of several layers. And the first layer is the second edition notes. This is um, basically like what you would look, you would, if you were reading a book, like an old book, and the editors have put a bunch of notes on it. Uh, only this is their second print printing. So the voice of this is kind of removed. Uh, it includes responses from some readers related to the first edition. Um, and it also includes like translation and correction uh, by the editors to the second layer, uh, layer, but this layer is fictional. It doesn't exist in the real world. It is essentially part of the novel. And the second layer is Johnny Truant's story. I'm going to hide this. <laughs> just saw it. Um, it's uh, Johnny Truant was putting together the second, the, the third layer. And the first layer is what uh, is res in response to the second layer, which follows Johnny Truant. He is in his early to mid twenties. He's pretty aimless. He had he he likes um, sex with a lot of random women. He likes uh, <laughs> he likes drugs and alcohol. He he has a very like the kind of job. He works at a um, uh, a tattoo parlor, but he's not even like really all that big in the tattoo parlor it's it's not he could be fired at any moment it doesn't it it's not a real career um but he's he becomes obsessed with the lower level layers of this book um it's revealed in the very beginning of house of leaves by this layer by johnny truant that the lower layer layers don't exist past the third layer uh which is pretty crazy um that means that most of what you read in this book is even made up in the world of the book. Um, his notes lose all format as his stability as a mentally becomes unhinged, uh, which makes it harder to read what he writes. The next layer is Zampano's book. Uh, this is something that Johnny Truant found when Zampano died uh, and his friend Lode took him to Zapano's place. This book is essentially an academic examination of the fourth layer. Uh, it ha it's very it tries to be very removed, but the truth of it is that um, it has a lot of self-hatred in it. Um, 
as seen by some of the edits he makes and by some of the comments people made to Johnny True in, in the fourth layer. Uh, he's, he was also blind, Zampano was, and although his room was filled with candles, which makes no sense, uh, he's less knowledgeable than he pretends he is. That's very clear from some of the notes we get from the fourth layer, from the second layer. He's also, as I said, dead. References that are made to the fourth layer are all fake. However, some of the references that are in this layer are real. They're, they're referring to real source texts that you can find in the real world. But any of them that refer to the fourth level are not real. They don't exist. <laughs> and so it's kind of hard to parse that, but um, that's the real dividing line. Uh, the text format becomes disjointed in relation to um, actions described in the fourth layer or Zampano's own self-hatred or fear. There's a chapter that is filled with missing bits of uh, words and letters because Zampano tried to burn it. So that, again, is also partially part of his self-hatred. Then the final layer, the fourth layer, is the Navidson record. So this is what Zampano is writing about. It's a movie that doesn't exist. Uh, it doesn't exist in the realm of House of Leaves, even. It only exists for Zampano. And that's why I say that those sources that refer to it don't exist in our world. Um, so the funny thing is about this is that it's a family, uh, the Navidsons, uh, a man, his girlfriend, and their two children. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, photojournalist, and she was going to leave him if they didn't, uh, if he didn't settle down and stop going on uh, photojournalism trips around the world. So they bought a house on Ash Tree Lane, and he decided that they, he was going to record they're um, moving in and settling in so that he could have this experience of what their uh, family was like, try to create a new job out of his new direction in life. Um, so he started to doc document everything. But as he did, he noticed uh, strange things started happening in the house. For one thing, the house was wider on the inside than it was on the outside, uh, which is physically impossible. There was, um, and it seemed to be getting wider too at the same time. And then uh, there was a doorway, a hallway that didn't exist between the two, uh, the children's bedroom and the parents' bedroom that wasn't there before. Uh, and then they find a doorway in their living room that was not there before. And it is huge what is inside there and it is never ending. It is essentially an infinite space of other spaces and a spiral staircase that uh, changes in size. Uh, no one knows why. So that's the story of House of Leaves, but that's all fake. There are several influences on this book this book is huge on the things that it takes from. Uh, some people recognize some of it, uh, but there's, and this is only like a small amount of influences. So one of the first ones is the postmodernist art in deconstructing form. And I know the word postmodernism scares some people. 
because it is um, definitely not uh, a word we like mostly around here. But old postmodernist art is not actually that um, thematically destructive of society. It is most older postmodernist art is is just about you know disrupting um, form and uh, traditional ideas of form. So uh, yes, it includes application of Barthes, Derrida, and Foucault, but in this book, it's only to the form, not to society. And uh, he even mentions Derrida at one point in one of the footnotes. Um, so it's more, to give you some examples of uh, authors who did this before, Kurt Vonnegut, Thomas Pynchon, Philip K. Dick, John Barth. John Barth was a huge postmodernist writer. Now for the secondary um, influence, uh, yeah, he does mention Heidegger as well. You're right, Caleb, uh, is Jorge Luis Borges, who he mentions specifically. He mentions Pierre Menard's uh, author of the Don Quixote, uh, which like shocked me. But there's other references too, like the fact that he was blind as an old man. So Zampano is kind of a reference to Jorge Luis Borges as well. Um, and his work was almost entirely devoted to mazes. So, um, and that included 2D space, 3D space, time, perception, memory. Um, one of my favorites is Shakespeare's memory. If that's my example of one that is um, about memory, but things like the garden of 14 paths, which has been mentioned in some other works um, such as uh, <laughs> the OA on Netflix, um, and then there's uh, the Library of Babel, the Alf, Borges and I, wherein he meets himself. So that's a pretty big one. Um, and then we have just normal haunted house stories like The Haunting of Hill House, a lot of stuff by Stephen King, that kind of um, uh, like just traditional horror, because it is kind of referencing horror. Now, the next reference that's pretty big is The King in Yellow. Uh, the King in Yellow is a collection of short stories that is all related to a play called The King in Yellow, which drives those who read it to madness and despair, which is a bit, um, this, where this reference comes in is to Johnny Truant's experience of Zampano's book. Because of the fact that uh, it, it, he is losing mental stability, the more and more he focuses on Zimpano's book, much like those who read The King in Yellow in the short stories of The King in Yellow. I, I swear that this author made this as confusing as possible as well. Next though, um, there's a lot of references to mental illness and drug abuse. There is a good chance that um, even though Zampano's book exists in the realm of uh, the House of, of House of Leaves, that uh, that Johnny Truant's instability as time goes on is actually a result of genetic mental illness and or drug abuse. Um, a big part of the reason why I say that is because as we learn more about him, his childhood was very. Um, Un, uh, unstable, very unhelpful for him to be uh, successful in uh, his ability to manage his emotions and his impulses at the same time as there being a history of mental illness in his family. The last thing 
that is a major influence is Davidson's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning photograph, uh, which is um, a very dark photo. Um, it's referenced several times in the novel without um, it being explained until later on in the novel. And this is what the Delilah reference is about. I'm going to show the photograph very briefly because it is pretty dark. And yeah, that one, uh, oh, I forgot I need to go that way. <laughs> um, and then finally, we have some, these are my two of my favorite quotes in the novel. Um, the first one is from a footnote from the um, Zampano level. Poor resolution focus and sound within the Navidson record further exasperate the difficulties posed by so many jarring cuts and a general chronological jumble. That said, it is crucial to recognize how poor quality and general incoherence is not a reflection of the creator's state of mind. Now, this could refer to what Navidson created as it's supposed to, um, the video that doesn't exist, or it could refer to Zampano's book uh, because Zampano wrote this, so it's possibly him defending himself. And it could also refer to Danielewski's format within this novel, uh, basically saying that uh, it is not uh, incoherent choices going on here, that these are deliberate choices that uh, Daniel F.S.D. is making. This is from the same chapter. It's also from the, um, the Zampano level, but it is, a, it is a description of what's going on in the Navidson record. Regrettably, Tom fails to stop at a sip. A few hours later, he has finished off the whole fifth as well as a half a bottle of wine. He might have spent all night drinking had exhaustion not cut up with me. The change to first person is incredibly interesting here to me because um, there's a lot going on here when it comes to, as I said with the previous quote, deliberate choices that look incoherent. Um, I do think that the change to first person in this section is deliberate um, and it's probably deliberately there to make you question what's going on. And then we have um, action dependent form. So as I said, the format of the book is uh, dependent on what's going on at the time in the book. So there are parts where people are at the top of the, um, the spiral staircase so the action is up there. So then the, the words are at the top of the page. If the action is at the bottom of the stairs, then the, um, the words are at the bottom of the stairs. When action needs to be slowed down as looking at individual frames of a bullet penetrating ahead, the words are spaced out over several pages in a line. Once the bullet penetrates the head though, the words spread out over the page as a gunshot wound would cause. Finally, we have the spiral staircase. What does it mean? Uh, this is the one feature within the, um, the unknown space within the house that uh, is somewhat stable. It's always there, whether or not it is the same size, it's always there. Um, and I think the reason why is because the action of the Navidson record spirals out of control um, and Zimpano's references and format also spiral out of control. And at the same time, the academic references are, are 
self-referential. They don't mean anything. So they just circle back on themselves as the footnotes actually do. And Johnny's connection to reality and behavior also spiral out of control. So uh, I think there's a reason why the spiral staircase is one of the central images of the book. And it's because of the fact that it is about um, downward spirals specifically. And then finally, the best part of this novel, the, the academic examination within Zampano's text is pointless. It doesn't exist because I read this after I got through grad school and I felt like I was, uh, I had just wasted my time with how we look at literature and um, things of that nature because we are all just talking at each other. And, and it seemed pointless to me. And then the, literally making academic examination style not real, uh, not have anything tethered in reality within the realm of the novel made a lot of sense to me because it is masturbatory. Um, and then the truant pursuit of sex and drugs is also meaningless. Uh, it doesn't bring him happiness and it makes his life incredibly unstable um, and he becomes less stable as time goes on. And then while the Navitson family doesn't exist, um, their attempts to grow closer together by the end of the novel is has more impact than what, um, than true, you know, on an emotional scale than uh, Truant's um, like party time in the beginning or the useless academic examinations throughout Zampano's text. Uh, and that there, there's a lot here about why I love this novel, but um, <laughs> there, I could have gone on a little further probably, but I didn't want to take up too much time. So uh, that was everything. And I'm going to stop sharing now. <laughs> and we can bring on everyone else. Hello. Howdy. Hi. So what did everyone think of this book? <laughs> I need to re-listen to your presentation later on when I can plan either before both think both before and after I actually finish the book. <laughs> I really loved your presentation. I like how that was I loved the layer of it. That was super cool. Thank you. I've tried to explain the book to people and it's hard to do. And I thought you're, again, I was like, oh, that's a good way to do it. She's got like layered presentation. Like, that's a really good way to describe it. There's these layers and this is this layer and that's that layer. Um, I The one thing I will say is I'm really glad that you uh, talked about the pointlessness of the analysis because I do not have a degree in English. I'm not, I did not go get a PhD in English, but I probably like a lot of people feel like there's a lot of over analysis and an academic masturbatory crap and the the whole the, the whole book the Uxapano's whole thing is just bullshit it's just pointless academic masturbation and it's about a non-existent thing so i felt like it's such a mockery of academia um that i <laughs> Like, I'm really glad that, like, I thought maybe I was the only one that thought this was a massive mockery of academia, but apparently, no, I'm not the only I, one. 
I picked that up like real fast because I was like, wait a minute. Every time, like as I was reading this, like when I read this the first time and I was like getting really into like the examinations of the Navidson record by the various academics, I was like, wait a minute, it's all bullshit. I have to like remind myself it doesn't exist. And so these, these people, anything they say does not matter. And I, I think that's brilliant. Well, and I even in the context of like, for me, even, even if it had existed, like to me, the, the the miraculous thing is this house and their analysis is like Karen's motivation and what she's thinking. I'm like, who the fuck cares? What? Like, really? That's your thing? You're like, you're trying to unravel what's going on in Karen's head when there's literally a thing that's defying <laughs> physics. <laughs> and your analysis is on this crap. It was just like, it's... <laughs> It's like an extra level of stupidity in, or like meaninglessness, I guess, is a better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to say, I think there's actually another layer. Well, kind of, I don't know if it's really a layer. Maybe it's more of an ambiguity, but it's the question of, let's say we assume that it's everything's real and the Davidson record is a real movie. Now, the question is, is it supposed to be fiction or a documentary? Like, is this an actual house defying the laws of reality or is it supposed to be a fictional like mockumentary? And I think it's kind of ambiguous. Like at the very beginning, when they talk about the camera going out the window and all the way around to show that the hallway is magical or whatever, um, he notes this is not beyond the abilities of a film student, you know, that this could be fake. So I think there's another ambiguity, which is like, is the house even real given the conceit that the, that, that, that the movie is real? So, so just like at every single level, this is totally questionable. <laughs> and I, I, I love it. But the thing is, is you pay – I, I kind of had the opposite experience from you in a certain way, Alex, that you were saying I have to keep reminding myself when I try to analyze it, oh, wait, it's not real. But to me, the fact that it's not real kind of made it more interesting because when he says these footnotes are all fictional, I'm like, oh, well, if some – or some of them are fictional, that means, well, he probably made them that way for a reason then. There's probably a reason why he wrote – this non-existent footnote is supposed to have an effect. So I'm going to look extra close at it. So I'm paying more attention to it because it's not real. Yeah. And he also, with the footnotes, he's got like, he has people that really exist that have really written things that you can look up like Susan Sontang. And then, but he also has her say things about the Navidson record that clearly she never said. Right. So it's like, it's not just like these references exist and these don't. It's like, well, this exists, and all this other stuff this person said exists, but they didn't say anything about the Navison record. <laughs> Just, Dude, there's yeah, even I, a, a point where he there's a bunch of like reviews of the Navidson record by people who exist, like Stephen King is one of them, and it's like right, well, right. clearly Stephen King never said that because this doesn't exist. <laughs> but it's it's kind of uh yeah, it is kind of funny because it's like. You could, I imagine there is someone who has done this, uh, go through every single one of the references and find out if the person is real, if the publication is real, if the article title is real, because maybe they did write an article named that, but clearly that the anytime that they actually say something refers to the Navidson record, that part isn't real. But it would take you a really long time to do that. Like, honestly, I, and some of them are really weird. Like it's in penthouse is one of the like more academic articles. And you're like, why? <laughs> like, I have a hard time believing that. 
Yeah. The other thing that I think was funny about the the mocking of academia is um, the only thing I did not read. I read everything, but the only thing I didn't read was the lists. I would skip uh, like skim the list because he has lists of like architects and buildings and books. And what I find funny from a, a mock the academia perspective is like they're completely irrelevant. They're not useful in any way. And so, like, he'll mention architecture and he'll be like, such as blah, 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 blah. And he'll just – it'll be like this this super detailed long list of either architectural features right down to, like, what gauge wire or would be in walls and what types of switches. Or it would be, like, just lists of famous architects and, like, and buildings and, like, just pages of it for for – that add zero value except to make you look smart like you know all this stuff. Which is why I say he supposedly is trying to make himself look smarter than he is in Pano. Because, like, at one point, one of them is a list of photographers. And the woman who helped him make that list in the Johnny Truant notes says that uh, he didn't really know who any of these photographers were. I just read a bunch of names and he told me to write down the ones he liked. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they are definitely just bs they're bs for him to pad out his citations essentially yeah i think that uh one thing i did notice when i was looking at the uh, the list of famous people that the wife goes and talks to um it kind of seems like all these famous people are trying to make a pass at her the way they talk to her like oh you doing anything later it's kind of weird and one thing that really entertained me was that one of them is Douglas Hofstadter, who's this famous cognitive scientist. He wrote a book in real life. He wrote a book called I Am a Strange Loop that I read when I was younger. And I find it really funny that he's the only one that doesn't seem like he's trying to make a pass at her. And he just wants to sit there and spurg about math the whole time. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know what significance that has. Although, and, and I'm going to do the over analysis thing now. I feel like a lot of the scientific stuff that you see, a lot of the science and math type stuff is basically a deflection to cover up when something really raunchy or vulgar is going on. So I, I think that that section with the famous people is sort of like they, they're all making this advance toward her except Mr. Math. Because at all points in the book, it's the, the math and science is used to cover up sex or death, one of those two things. Well, and the funny thing is about that, I mean, like, one of the reasons why they might be hitting on her is because she is a model, like, and I, I do find all the psychological examination of the characters in the Navidson record, for, like you mentioned it, Charter, to be kind of hilarious. There's a part where uh, Navi, like, gets out after the spiral staircase extends too long for him to possibly make up you would you would think make it back up and like it's been days and and like oh he comes out and karen's first reaction is to like essentially like scream when she sees him and there's all these examinations about what that scream meant and like one of them is like oh she feels threatened by the fact that navi's back and he's gonna take her newfound independence and it's like what 
like like so many of the like and some of them are are that kind of feminist read which i find really hilarious because it's like it's a feminist psychological read which is just it's just bs <laughs> like there's and when you read that you're like there's no way she's clearly probably just relieved that the man she loves is back but they're they're so they have to have their like weird interpretations of the Navidson record and all of them are just so silly like I think a lot of the ones that are psychological and stuff like that it within the realm of if they're real uh essentially are pretending as though the Navidson record is a documentary because I feel like you can't or they're evading the reality of this space that cannot be you know it like covered by reality you know and they're They're focused on answering the question that no one can challenge their their answers for like i can invent lots of psychological reasons about karen and you can't argue with me because i can just invent reasons and it's totally tangential to what's really going on but i can't explain what's really going on and if i do that i could end up looking like an idiot so i'm not gonna like it's it's that kind of academic, like, I'm going to dance around the edges and say a bunch of stuff that, like, no one could possibly verify or or dismiss. It's just arbitrary. And I'm well, going to seem smart. I, I, th- I feel, I liken those ones to the, 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 um, the police officer who goes into the the space and then immediately comes back out and just won't talk about it and he's like nothing yeah. to see here and he leaves because he's it's so <laughs> terrifying and and like inconceivable that he can't like focus on it and that's how they are acting so they're like okay i'm gonna focus on something i can conceptualize essentially and it's like it is kind of pathetic though because you're like well uh you're like ignoring the giant elephant in the room and uh, i i just find it so funny because i i love him for clowning on academics like this because i having spent so much time with them like i like them but i also find that a lot of the things academics do are pointless so to me i was like this is perfect um i don't know I mean, maybe not everyone agrees and maybe he didn't need to drive that point home like two thousand times within the novel <laughs> But it made me laugh every time. Um, I just wanted to bring something up because I'm not sure you made it clear when you were showing. The picture you showed was Kevin Carter's picture. There was a real, just so everyone knows, there is a real life, well, there was a real life Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist who did take that picture of the vulture with the Sudanese kid. And I think he killed himself shortly after the pul- he got his Pulitzer Prize. Um, and this, it's clearly, it's, I'm curious about, um, the author's choice to base Will Navidson off of a real person. Like that's, he's clearly, at least his, his career is clearly based off of Kevin Carter. I, when I, I think a big part of it, cause I was coming at that question to from the perspective of a writer, what what makes you grab onto something like that and like really dig into it from a character perspective is that you want you want to answer the question what kind of person takes that photograph. Um, so, because I could see myself asking that too, because it is such a, a terrifying, horrible image um, that you kind of like how do you just stand there and 
Can I can I answer that a little bit? I I was a newspaper reporter and I had to take photos of certain things. Like I remember taking photos of a house burning down, like it's on fire, like a couple of different things. And I felt terrible, like the family's there, but it's also kind of like, I, I'm like, I have to do this. This is my job that like I, and the like firefighters is like, there are people that are trying to help out. Like I can't do anything to help out though. And like, then I, but then it, you just feel like really uh, guilty about it though. Like, I'm sorry. Like I, but I was sent out here to, to cover this and now I have to and but then you just know like the, the people like because I, I don't remember if they even said something because there might have been another reporter in me there but about like oh like how can you be like wanting to write about this or do something like when like my life is falling apart here and it's just kind of like this is the news like this is just kind of what I have to do but yeah it's definitely I don't know like you you have some guilt there with it do you think yeah, that and- we've become more numb to that though because now everyone has a phone and everyone seems to be recording bad event, not everyone, but lots of people are recording horrific stuff without any seemingly with no guilt about just like I, it seems like even 20 years ago, people would feel weird like you do saying you're you did about like taking taking photos of things that are horrific instead of helping. But I, f- I feel like now you just like, go on Twitter like that's all people do is take video of things that are horrific without helping. Yeah, I mean I think we're definitely desensitized in a lot of ways and I don't know, sometimes I think that can be good and sometimes it's bad. I mean I'll say for me like I told you guys before the show too, I just had a fox attack the chickens and one get killed and it and I was emotional about that but then like with all the bunnies that we have like I'm getting desensitized to them whatever is happening to them. So sometimes it's just like, oh, okay, now we're all, like, I, I get this. This is just part of, this is the circle of life. So sometimes I'm like, oh, desensitizing can be helpful, but I also compartmentalize a lot too. So it's, I, I don't get emotional all the time. Or like if something horrific is happening, I think you, which can be helpful as far as like, if you're in an emergency, you don't want to be, emo- like you want to be able to like, hey, I need to like focus and, and get things done. And then afterward, then you can like let it all sink in. So sometimes that, so I don't know, but yes, I do think we are desensitized as a whole. Well, and I think, I mean, it's kind of important. He wrote this before, Daniel, uh, Daniel Epstein wrote this before we all had camera phones and social media was a big deal. So it's kind of like, it was kind of a singular experience to have someone go through that. Like photojournalists experienced that more than anyone else. And uh, I think it was important to note that Navidson was haunted by having taken that image and by what happened to that little girl. I don't think it was uh, a whole, what a heartless bastard for doing so, but like he felt bad. He did. He felt bad for taking that photo, for winning an award for that photo and um, for feeling like he hadn't done enough to save the little girl. So like there was, I, I feel like it's a very sympathetic view of the photojournalist plight of having to take care, take a photo of something horrific. Um, it's just, and I, I, I think that's a good thing, honestly, because we do want photos of these kinds of things, but it, because they do show us like some really important information about the world. But at the same time, we have to recognize the psychological damage they're doing to the people taking the photo themselves. Um, now when it does it now, yeah, I agree that there's a lot of people who are desensitized and he brings up descent desensitization to, um, spectacle in the novel. 
because of the fact that people, when, when he talks about how people are like, Oh, the Navidson record isn't real. It's not, um, the, the space in the house is not real. This is all parlor trips. And because of like Hollywood spectacle and all this stuff, like they cannot accept that this is real. And there's even a a chapter where they go on about how eventually we won't even be able to trust video. And we are kind of reaching that point now. Um, So I I found that really, I mean, this is a 22 year old book, probably actually a little older than that, considering he passed it around as a, as a like copy, you could just have like hand copies. And um, so it's kind of interesting that that, point is in there that not only will we be de- will we be desensitized to spectacle but we're also going to be desensitized to the idea of video as as reality um i I've, i find that really interesting that he kind of predicted that yeah i mean he does it though through quotes of of actual people who do exist in reality who did predict that right so it's not like daniel elsky's predicting it. he's like basically referencing predictions of that people made about that. I mean, we, we don't come away. I don't come away though. Like, I don't want to say this. It's good that, that Navidson is upset by that photo. I mean, Kevin Carter was upset. Um, It's good that Navidson is upset by it. And so we kind of want people to be psychologically injured by doing it, which is a weird thing to say, but like we want those pictures, but we also want people who are bothered by having to take those pictures. We don't want people who don't give a crap. Um, and Navidson, like both Navidson and Karen, even though I disliked, I disliked her early on. I, I kind of disliked him at times, but by the end, I liked them both just fine. They're just ordinary people trying to, repair their relationship and live their lives uh, and deal with tragedy. I think, I think there's a, 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 a kind of maybe, and I might be just making this up, but it kind of seems to me like there's a subtle theme of voyeurism in this book. And I think that's the truest, that, that that's something that comes up a lot with artsy type people, people who are self-consciously artists or especially sort of the more academic side of that, the more fine art side of that. There is a weird sort of a voyeuristic quality to it a lot of the time. For example, there's this documentary that I'm going to go off topic a little bit, but it's going to make sense. Don't worry. There's this documentary on black metal, which is a subgenre of heavy metal. Most people probably know where this guy, this artist takes a bunch of stuff that black metal musicians did years and years ago and makes an entire art gallery out of it and then invites one of the guys who participated in that to come and look around. So the guy's walking around looking at all these pictures of himself and his friends playing music when they were younger. And the art and the, the artist who made this is sitting there with his legs crossed like this, smoking a cigarette. And it's almost pornographic. Like it's almost like porn. It's kind of gross to watch. Like this, this, this dehumanizing aesthetic creep sitting here watching this dude look at this thing, this, this weird facsimile he made of him. And, and I it's think almost made- sadistic when you describe it that way. It sounds like, look what I did to you. I'm gonna watch. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's like some creepy shrink, like giving a rat electric shocks. It's it's weird. And, and especially with the more fine art side of thing, I think you get that. And I, I, I kind of at the beginning, when you said you didn't like Navidson at the beginning, I really resonated with that because at the beginning, I kind of read him that way. He's not toward the end as, as the book goes on. But at the beginning, I kind of read him that way and just I kind of instinctively went, Ugh. Well, I mean, I think the the most emotional connections in the book happen between Navidson and the people around him, not on the higher levels that are supposed to be real. Um, because, for example, like Navidson and his brother Tom, they repair their relationship within the Navidson record. They hadn't spoken in years, and now they're they're okay and they they love each other clearly. And then, like Karen and Navi, they they grow closer by the end, uh, like. The fact I one of the reasons why I didn't dislike Navi the first time I read this book from the beginning is because Navi is best friends with Billy Reston, who he took a photo of right before he was permanently disabled. Um, and he like the fact that Billy Reston is actually happy someone has captured that horrific moment in his life and made it like captured the pain and the terror of it. Um, and, and it cemented their relationship forever, uh, to the point where Billy's willing while still dramatically disabled to go down in that spiral staircase yeah, with him. Yeah. Like it's pretty intense that relationship. So like, to me, I like the fact that those two were so close and that Navi repaired his relationship with Tom so quickly is why I still liked Navi. <laughs> It does speak to his character that the the subject of his photograph likes him. Like, yeah, you know, if if the Sudanese girl was like Kevin Carter's great, that would change how people perceive. <laughs> Actually, I think it turned out to be a boy in the real photo, but whatever. Yeah, I like uh, the Wayfarer in chat says the photographer can't directly help who's to say the photo is not helpful in itself. I think that is a good point because it's like you know awareness. Which is something too. It's like, oh, here's this tragedy of a house fire, and now it's like they can use help. So then you have people uh, see the see what happened and like donate whatever things to clothing, food, money. Um, so. And it helps other things and a greater cause, but it doesn't help the person, right? Like that's that's the thing you're struggling with as a photographer. I imagine is like, well, you can help the person, or you can take a picture that ultimately helps maybe the cause generally. Right. I'd say yeah, that. Do you want to say to that starving person like, oh, well, you're starving to death, but don't worry, bud. A lot of other people are going to benefit from me taking this picture of you dying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Audrey Hepburn's going to use it for a commercial and everyone will donate. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. I'd like to think that most people, though, like if you're if you're in a situation that's like, oh, someone needs immediate help now, like you have a photographer, and then you're able to do something that they would choose to attempt to help if no one else is around to do anything, rather than just take the photo of it happening. But maybe I'm too optimistic about people. <laughs> well, I mean, we've seen photos now uh, of people like watching their kids get like in horrific kind of accidents and they're like they take photos or they take video of it like the the photo of the kid essentially being eaten by the camel that it was trying to feed like and and a lot of people make fun of it and like help kid take photo hmm that internet clout like is <laughs> that does it happen on an accident like where you just you don't expect that thing that like it's just Maybe. here's this tragedy I, I that you're already 
I assume the one with the camel and the kid is like they're they're taking a photo of their kid feeding a camel and then the camel like yeah and, and then you have and, to stop and then and you have to stop. help yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that happens to me with my animals when, when I'm like oh let me record something or take out like oh god what are you doing you're tripping so and then to, you drop well, the recording and you yeah run. yeah and then you yeah just, yeah I know I I think it's just it that some of that I think is a quality of us all having cameras ready mm-hmm. now so we're able to capture moments like that by accident but i have right. seen some photos and some video where people are recording an ongoing incident and they don't yeah care. well it's still yeah you just like, yeah. let me still do it. I, yeah I, I don't get or, that and this has been touched on before actually there was a stand-up comedian name was sam kennison he's a big fat dude ex-preacher and his whole i don't know if anyone here has seen his act but his whole act is basically he screams really loud and it's funny. But at one point he's talking about these starving child infomercials and they had a lot of those back in the nineties. You probably remember them if you're old enough. Uh, and, and he says, he's talking about this. He says, I'm watching this starving child infomercial and I'm thinking, wow, how sad, how cruel. I know the film crew could give that kid a sandwich. You know, the director sitting back there going, don't feed him yet. Doesn't work unless it looks hungry. Which, which I, I think that 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 is kind of the same sentiment because this you ha- the situation has to be bad, and if you fix it, then you can't use it to manipulate anyone, and that's a problem. And uh, to what we're talking about phones, I think that that factors into it in the sense that it had to be a lot more calculated and deliberate back when cameras were expensive. These days, it can actually be spontaneous, so maybe it doesn't feel as artificial. Yeah, I I have a I don't mean to change the topic, but I've been thinking about this. Um, I'm gonna throw out a weird question: Does lewd exist? That's a good question because a lot of what Johnny Truant says is through a filter of mental illness. That's what I okay. I haven't gotten again. I'm not very far in, but like I have been wondering. I'm like, how much? Where's this? Where the twist going to be? Especially when you guys were like, oh, it's not really spoilers because I was worried about. I'm only 85 pages in, but but I was just like, okay, if the twist isn't, I'm disappointed that the Navidsons. It's not a real thing that like the house isn't real. I thought maybe they're. they're there'd be some sort of weird layers of unit multiverse kind of thing. Sorry, my goose is mad. And, uh, but if that's not going to happen, like, okay, then where is this going to go? It has to be something about Johnny true. And like, what, what's his deal? Like what psychological issues does he have? So I'm wondering like, what can I trust? There's a lot of like the, you can't trust the narrator sort of thing. Well, to take away some of your disappointment, I wanted to say we, we're not entirely sure that it's fake lewd uh, or a, um, what's his name? Uh, crazy dude not some johnny johnny truant yes truant truant could be lying or crazy maybe he just doesn't want to believe it's real oh yeah the only other person uh, the thing is though is that the reason why i say that zampano's book is real is because of all the people there was a lot of people that um johnny talked to that met zampano and like translated things things that johnny couldn't have known like he doesn't speak any other languages really. So most of the the translations that he's getting from other people, they have to actually come from other people. Um, so to me, I'm sort of like, okay, so we've established that he has no way of knowing a bunch of other languages. So these people have to be real, which means the Navidson record at least is real. And how like our uh, introduction to Zampano's book um, 
with Johnny Truant is because of Lude. Uh, we don't, he does not find the book unless Lude exists. So I'm on the side that Lude does exist. Um, I well, let me make a counter argument to that. Okay. Because, uh, first of all, there's a part with, uh, I forget the, the girl's name, but her boyfriend who wants to beat up Lude and Johnny both. And there's a, there's a clear conflation. Like, I don't know why he wants to go after lewd because i'm the one who did the thing and it's like they're like he seems to conflate the two characters at once you don't have any scenes where like johnny's the one telling you what lewd has done so it's not like like maybe johnny knew zimpano and lewd is just a figment of johnny's imagination and then and then the thing i'm going to add on to this which made me question it in the first place is it's weird that Johnny goes into all of his sexual exploits because they're totally unrelated to the book. But it's even weirder that he has a detailed description of Lude's sexual exploits. And that's the kind of thing to me. It's like, okay, why are you including that unless unless you are like unless Lude is is you somehow, unless this is like a a figment of, of our imagination. Thing. He just kills loot off at some point because he can. And like, no one seems to, I, I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of evidence that loot necessarily exists. Cause he's kind of a passive. I mean, at least so far, like he's just there to kind of initiate, like come hang out sort of thing. He's like, he's almost like the, you know, Alex started off saying, um, there's like a lot of drug issues with Johnny, right? Lude is like the, that part of like Lude could just be that part of Johnny, like the partying drug sex crazed part of Johnny. Who's at least in the real world. Even if he's a hedonist, he's not, you know, a recluse in his apartment. At least he's out in the real world doing stuff. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I know there's scenes where, you know, Lude is with Johnny and other people and they seem to recognize both of them. But again, all those scenes are told to us by Johnny. Um, and the fact that he, by the end of the book, he's clearly making stuff up and then saying like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then like several pages later, none of that happened, um, which is like what his mom did also. So it's kind of like, I don't I don't know that what you're telling us is true at all. So it's kind of like the kindly doctor part that suddenly saves him. I love that savior fantasy he has that someone comes along and makes his life all better. But like whether or not Lude is real um, within the realm of Johnny Truant's story, I would say that definitely from a literary perspective, there is an argument to be made that he is a symbol of the party life for Johnny Truant. Um, definitely. And that's why he dies off. Like, because he does give up on that. Um, well, his, so, yeah. his name sounds like Quaalude. I mean, but, but, but that was... <laughs> it's a I, weird I, name. I, yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of stands out. And I wanted to make the remark that um, I think it's kind of interesting that we take it less seriously the deeper in we get. Like, with with with... Truant, we're willing to debate about what he did and didn't do and what's real and what's not. With Zampano, it's kind of like, whatever, he's just a bloviating academic windbag. 
And then by the time we get into the actual movie, it's just it. We, we don't even care what's real and what's not. It's like whatever. It's a fever dream. But but I mean, is that really the right way to approach it? Should we take it less seriously as we go in? I would say to take probably the Navidson record the most seriously myself. I like uh, I would say Nav- the Navidson layer and the Johnny Truant layers are the most important layers in the entire novel. That's my I mean, I don't believe that. Danielewski wants you to um, take any layer less ser- seriously than the other. I do want. I do think he wants you to recognize that the academic level is BS um, because he's trying to say that at the, this kind of interpretation is BS. But like, I think uh, for me anyway, that the Johnny Truant level, uh, which is the dopamine, what I call the dopamine addicted level. And the Navinson record, which is about the world versus the family, are the two most important layers in the book. Okay, so you may have uh, covered this at the beginning. Again, I'm going to have to rewatch your presentation because some of it was just like hard to follow, and I need to rewatch it. Uh, but the when when Johnny goes through the Navinson record, like he admits at one point that he he edited in like he's been editing stuff too, like the water heater at the beginning where he's like, oh, it was just she just said heater, but he edited in water. So I know that he's already editing it, and they're like, and at first it bothered me in Johnny's writing that like oh he had like typos like he wrote, uh, but had to get into the mindset like oh this is this is just his style like this is how he writes like could have was a big was a big pet peeve of mine that it just wrote of instead of have. But I, I know that would bother you. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Uh, but then I saw that in the Navidson record, it also at one point it also said could of instead of have. So it made me wonder like, is this part written like was this supposed to be Sampano's writing or did Johnny edit like so then I'm just wondering how much is he adding or editing and not or, or was it is there some other like weird relationship that's going on like I, it just struck me strange that Zampano would would have written that also and again I don't know I'm like if these are in, I assume everything in here is intentional but like even in the Navidson record the the format kind of changes like sometimes he'd have the commas within the quotation marks which you should in American ones but then sometimes they the commas would be outside of it and then so I was just wondering like why is he changing that like is this intentional what does this mean and I still don't know yet some of what you just brought up is evidence uh, along with that first qu- that second quote that I gave uh, in the presentation where it changed to first person is the yeah. evidence that people give. And I com- completely believe that this is a value valuable interpretation that Zampano does not exist and that Johnny True wrote everything. That's what, yeah, that's what I was wondering <laughs> too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think there is this one thing is that all the academic stuff that is presented is like super fucking serious my, is all bullshit. But I do think that there's one exception. And, and you know, this maybe uh, maybe Daniel Esky is I'm just going for his trap hook line and sinker here. I don't know. But at the beginning where he quotes Heidegger, uh, that I don't know if that's authentically from being in time, but it's certainly the kind of thing Heidegger would have said. And it's funny because I think this is actually the one bit of academic speak that's not BS, and Truant calls it out as being BS. Like, Truant straight up says, uh, which only goes to prove the existence of crack back in the early 20th century. I laughed out loud at that when I read it. 
certainly this geezer must have gotten uh, hung up, must have, not must have, hung up on a pretty wicked rock habit to start spouting such nonsense. Crazier still, I've, I've, I've just now been wondering if something about this passage may have actually affected me. Now, you see, what, what happens is, is Heidegger dis, uh, describes um, anxiety as what happens when design, that is a human being, is separated from the they, when you're separated from other people. And then Truant goes on to have this really creepy experience of something sneaking up on him and says, I should have stayed with other people. Like, I'm pretty sure the entire crux of the book is that Heidegger passage. I know that sounds weird, but I, I am pretty sure that that Heidegger passage is kind of the hinge that this book swings around, or uh, that a lot of it does. Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, he's arguing that no longer believing in objective reality will drive you crazy because you can't accept, like, the idea that the space exists and there's a lot of people who deliberately evade the existence of the space to be able to still function. But if you focus on it too much and if you focus too much on the idea that this is real and both not real, it will drive you insane. So this kind of duality of reality is dangerous to your actual cognition. And uh, that's a huge part of this book, which is one of the reasons why I think it's very applicable to how people look at the world today, um, is that there's too many people willing, like, willing to accept the idea of subjective reality over objective reality. And, um, and it, it's, it's, well, he's using postmodernism to actually show the danger of that because it's very hard to even read this book. It's very hard to go through it because sometimes you have to go backwards and sometimes you have to go forwards and then backwards again. And then, and sometimes it loops back several, like a hundred pages or something like that. And it's makes it really hard and you have to decide, like, do I keep going? Do I evade that, you know, push off to, you know, going backwards and everything. And because, and, and it infuriates people, people are literally infuriated trying to read this book. So they just, they don't finish it. And one of the, and I think one of the reasons why is his point is clear that you cannot function like this with this lack of formality and, and it, it doesn't work. And I think he proves it time and time again, you, you have to accept objective reality and you have to accept some form of formality. Otherwise you will go insane. So to me, I feel like that's one of the biggest benefits of reading this book is in going in there and but even if you don't finish it and you end up hating it, at least it's a litmus test. Do you hate the idea of this kind of circuitous and broken uh, formality? Good. That's good. You should hate it. <laughs> I think we were just I mean, talking is about. Is Danielowski actually a postmodernist, or is he? I feel like he's maybe just doing the best way to implode postmodernism is to take it seriously, and he's taking it yeah, seriously. Yeah, it seems like. like all right, yeah. here you go. I, I think showing us also, that. there's a difference between postmodernism as a style and actually believing certain things about truth and subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. like you can totally. I think you can accept the existence of a world outside your head and still write stuff like this because you think it's fun. Um. So I, th I think that's definitely a factor. One, one thing I wanted to bring up, though, is it's kind of weird because we're at a strange point in history where technology insulates us enough from reality that we can actually entertain the idea of it not being real. Because if you're a caveman and you don't accept reality, 
oh, that 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 uh that that saber cat isn't there, that cave bear isn't there. Well, you're you're dead. Uh, you know, if you're a medieval farmer or peasant, you don't accept reality. Well, I don't care. I'm not going to plant anything. It'll grow anyway. Well, no, it doesn't. You starve to death. Uh, but we're at the point now where like oh, the only thing you have to take seriously is your fake email job. And you get magical numbers on the screen when you look at your bank account and then you can stay alive. So something about technology insulates us enough that we can, it seems plausible that reality isn't there. And there are some people who will go to any length to ignore reality because they think it's evil. I know that sounds weird, but there are people like that. Yeah. They just resent reality. I, I want to bring something that up that I didn't realize until this, uh, episode started and rod said this earlier on so danielowski has a sister his sister is is the artist poe i just pulled up on spotify she has an album um which is a companion to this book uh this album is called haunted and there's literally a song called five and a half minute hallway uh <laughs> I haven't listened to this album, but I'm what? I'm about to. That's awesome. <laughs> I just wonder if there's any insight in any of if has anyone heard her music and is there any like did we learn anything from it? That is one thing that I have not had the pleasure of experiencing yet. I I'm probably gonna do that uh next. I'm gonna I'm reading it again, so I'm probably gonna listen to it while I read it. But um I know like I think I read this back in 2018 the first time and I actually have like a five and a half minute video on my YouTube channel back when I did book reviews <laughs> where I talk about it and I try to visualize in the in the video uh, how the hallways work and stuff like that. And um, honestly, it's just a silly thing. But I, I am excited, probably, I'll probably do more content on House of Leaves just because I feel like I'm the only one who gives a crap about this book as much as doing that. And probably the 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 album is next for me. I really like the book, so I'll let you know, like once, once I actually finish, and I will finish it, it's just going to take me a while. So back to the, are any of the, the typos actually meaningful later though too like should I be wondering because like I do know on certain pages that like it said uh tear was it some, instead of oh tear to Pisces instead of pieces it had key was k-y-e and I was like I don't I just don't know like are, is this important well uh and, and actually like the the words themselves or is it just like the psychology of the person writing it and because I just I don't know yet I think to some extent there's a that's a world building technique to show how how he is his own kind of character he doesn't i pre see i've talked before on our book clubs about authors not varying their voices depending on what character they're uh actually in the head of um this one is it's not just the head it's the writing of which means which is completely different than being in the head of a person but they have their writing style has to be different so when the writing style starts to blend together, I think that is actually, and, and because they're very distinct, especially in the beginning, I, I would say that that speaks to um, a level of um, 
unreality on like you need to start questioning lower levels do they exist essentially okay because and then also what is my other thing yeah because it was like Zampano seemed like your your writing style was very good and then when it's devolving like because I think I let Johnny Truant slide I'm like yeah he's got mistakes and stuff too so it's like all the things that I'm really making note now I'm like this is like an academic piece like that I'm expecting more of you right now Zampano and um, also I didn't I, I can't find, maybe I'm just blind, but footnote 51, I saw the footnote at the bottom, but it didn't, I couldn't find where it was supposed to be in place on the page, on page, for, I think, 40, around 43. And and I kept searching, and I don't know if I just keep missing it, but it was, like, really bothering me. Like, what is this footnote to? <laughs> I said that, um, I, I think I've told you and Carter and uh, maybe Caleb too off stream that I there the first time I read this there was a footnote that I could not find I searched through the entire book and I could oh, not find yeah. it okay like, is that this one <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> like, but like yeah I think there's at least one footnote that doesn't exist in this book because that's the thing is that Zapano starts making mistakes he does yeah. uh, and then also his format his format breaks down um uh, quite a bit uh, as time passes. So like, and and then like some of the footnotes are letters instead of numbers. Uh, 50, by oh, the way, no. footnote I think 51, I did find it. It does it's exist. Just, yeah, so it's just in a different before. order. Yeah, because yeah. 50 those, is down Those letter footnote below. things are, if you go to the back, there are symbols from um, one of these pictures. There's like a, uh, like they mean different things. Like, uh, unable to proceed require wow. food and water like those are little weird symbols for i don't know where that okay. comes from well so, and so for, it goes 49 51 and then 50 by the way that in the on the page itself so that's why i was only looking between 50 and then 52 so i was trying to find it i didn't realize that's it was because just out 50 of order is a footnote in 49's footnote you're so right kind of crap, yeah right <laughs> Yeah, they are. They get progressively more out of order and harder to find as you get deeper into the novel. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, you haven't gotten to the part where it's like, there's, 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 like, there's, yeah, there's footnotes. The format that of the are, pages is not what you would expect. <laughs> yeah, there's the the worst chapter to me is when they really start exploring the the maze space. Is the the one with the box that is also reversed. Which yes. you don't have, like, I don't read the box, like, the se for secondary readings. And then there's, like, ones on the side and ones on the other side. And there's ones along the margin. <laughs> that That is probably one of the, the hardest chapters to read, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one where I, like, had to get a mirror at one point and, oh, like, hold the book up this to is, a mirror. And be like, it's not oh. the first book that I've had that I had to hold it up to a mirror to read backwards text, though. I have had other books do that to me i did that also i went time. and translated that whole stupid letter from his mom like i had wrote it in the margins that was a that pain. one that one was the hardest one for me to read like and i think that he literally made it so hard to read and then when you read what she's actually trying to say you're like oh it's like really hard to read because of what she's saying it's like this yeah. is intense um that was the one part of the book that I actually like took out a pen and paper and wrote it down. <laughs> and I think he's forcing you to write it down on purpose. Um, because yeah. 
to make you like feel that more. What's your, so what's your, any, I guess anyone, like what's your recommendation as far as like the best way to read it? Do you think that where it says like, oh, check out appendix number two to ball to see the story. Do you, do you think it's better to jump ahead and see the story or just read it? Caleb's really shaking his head. No. I did it the way you're describing, I, Beverly. When it said when it referenced an appendix, I went and read it. That's what I did. I, and it normally looked, I've done that in the past, but then like so right now, I was just like, "Well, let me keep reading straight through because it's already." I, yeah, I just I haven't been sure how to do it. <laughs> I mean, I say for, for the my, first reading, I would do it. <laughs> you would, okay. Caleb says no. For my part, it was more like, I, I guess the best way I can say it is, okay. Let me back up a little bit. I would not care if someone gave me plot spoilers for this book because the plot is not the point. The point is the experience of sitting down and actually trying to read this fucking thing, right? Um, that that that's the that it's the it's dealing with you know it's dealing with this. Oh geez, if it'll actually show up, like dealing with this stuff, you know. And and, and to by me, the way, that the makes fact you seem it, a little bit like Johnny, but okay. <laughs> seem a little bit like Johnny, like Johnny Truon. Yeah, all the notes, got, like, in notes there. everywhere. Yeah, I prefer because oh, yeah. it looks like you. You don't write in your book. You write notes. You write like sticky notes and put them in. So I, I if I well, were to write I, notes, I'd do that. I, I wanted to say, like, trying to understand it, I think, kind of ruins the point because this is supposed to be like a balls to the wall, batshit lunacy, crazy, disorienting experience. So when you're reading, especially the part in the middle where they're going into the maze, which is the most disjointed part of the book, to me, reading through that and just feeling totally lost is how you're supposed to feel. Or maybe not how he intended it, but I think that that's the, to, to, to me, that seemed like the best way to experience it, to just let my, this wash over me and just be completely baffled by it. Uh, I did have one other thing. I think this little box on these pages, you know, this little box that occurs and then as you move on, it there's still a box there. I'm pretty sure that's the house. And I the reason for that is if you look at the box and it's nothing but building materials. Everything inside of that box is building materials, first of all. Second of all, the outline of it is blue. And whenever you see the word house, the word house is blue. Third of all, if you think about it, all those squares stacked up on top of each other printed in the pages forms a cube made of paper. It's a cube, kind of like a house. So with blue walls. So I, a great I don't observation. know. I just, I I just like wanted that. to throw that out there. It's probably total horse shit, just like everything else in here. But <laughs> I, I did my best. No, I, that actually makes sense. In, in the box, for those who don't know, that box is like, it's one of those things that I read, but you didn't really have to because it's just building materials, um, <laughs> which is really weird. Uh, so, yeah, I and then at the end, it says picture that in your dreams. Granted, that's struck, struck out, but uh, struck, stricken out. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, that adds that dimension of like unreality to that box, which is the house. I I have two questions for everyone. Like, what did you think of the the growl slash monster um, that even Truant, like one of the first experiences he has is in the, the tattoo parlor closet. And then also Zampano had those slash marks by his body. And then, um, and uh, what did, 
actually, I may have forgotten my secondary question. I might think of it in a moment. <laughs> but go okay, ahead wait, and answer Alex, the first sorry, wait, yes. Before we do that, I just noticed okay. one thing I want to point out with Caleb's boxes. The last two boxes, the black one is small and the white one is is big, which to me maybe suggests like, oh, the outside of the house and then the inside of the house where it's like there's the, the dimension changes. The black one is the dimension you expect it to be, which is within the borders. And then suddenly there's this void of a white box, which is much bigger. So I just right. wanted to throw that out. No, no, that exactly. No, um, but I, I wanted to say I, I'm like I'm like bouncing up and down here when Alex asked that question because I can totally spurg about this for like hours. Um, the growl is coming from the house, which is Navidson. The house is you, and that space inside the house is a space inside you. When you withdraw from the outside world and you're lost in subjectivity, and it's this crazy Borges esque maze. That's what the house is to me, anyway. And and I find it interesting because th there's two different themes here. First of all, the theme of the echoing. Now, remember, the echo he notes means that you're not alone because there's something for it to echo off of. There's something out there that's not you. And he gives the equation for how long an echo takes and notes that if all the variables are infinite, there's no echo. Because if there's no boundaries, nothing can echo. If there's no walls or ceiling or floor, if they're infinitely far away, you're basically in a void where nothing is. So there can't be an echo and there's nothing out there to bounce off of so it feels unreal because there's nothing there opposed to you as you're just left with yourself and the way that that factors back into the growl it seems to me and this also goes back to the heidegger passage at the beginning of the book because in the heidegger passage he uses this concept from heidegger of anxiety which comes about when you're separated from other people not just physically but psychologically and like existentially separated from other people in a way that causes you to ruminate and withdraw into yourself and you're no longer absorbed in coping with the world you're sort of passively being alongside the world and contemplating and that's when this anxiety can assault you. So that growl is the growl you're coming at that, that is coming from you when you are confronted with yourself. And that's why he says at one point, the, the other hinge that the book swings around to me or like another statement of that same central axis is when he says that the growl coming from the book or coming from the house, the house, the book, the monster, they're all the same thing. The growl coming from the monster or the monster that's coming in is the it, it's sort of your fear of coming face to face with your own reality or the house coming face to face with its own reality because the house is a piece of human subjectivity that's what it is so because it's the fear of coming face to face with your own reality remember that heidegger also has this concept and the other existentialists do too have this concept of being faced with concrete realities the idea is you have all these different possibilities that are spread out in front of you and as soon as you pick one as soon as you pick one possibility all the others are closed off and that kind of hurts existentially that is kind of a painful thing because you're closing off all possibilities in order to choose one. So being confronted with your own reality means it's kind of smacking you in the face with this is the reality now and those possibilities are choked off. Whereas inside of the house is infinite possibility and these people going in are trying to sort of get away from reality into this space of infinite possibility. But once you're stuck there, um, it, it actually just creates more anxiety because now you're separate from everything. So it's this whole big snake eating its own tail type of thing. Sorry. Why is it a growl though? That's the like the why that why that sound? Why the claws? Like that actually I I, I like what you're saying, but the concretization of that is a growl and the claw marks. 
I don't get, I, I guess. I think that's a callback to old horror um, concepts in literature because the whole idea of horror originally, like when you go back to the Gothic period, is that you have the, the real world and then you have the fantasy realm. And the fantasy realm, is, and it, it wasn't supposed to, like we use the word fantasy and we mean like, like a, a dream that is wherein we're awesome. But they meant fantasy as in anything that was unreal in your head. So like, and they, and they always felt like the fantasy realm was dangerous. That if you spent too much, you could spend time down there and it would be fine. But if you spent too much time down there, it would hurt your brain. Like you would definitely, it would definitely start to destroy you. So it is actually dangerous, making it a growl, something threatening, making it claw, giving it claws, something threatening is I think associated with those old ideas about horror because this is still technically a horror novel, um, but it's just a very weird one. Uh, so that that's my interpretation of that is that um, if we want to apply Caleb's um, idea of what it is, is that I think it's, it's bringing in the old horror ideas. Um, and I also I, I wanted to say in response to that, just riff on that real quick uh, in response to your question, Carter, uh, or, or that can, or that what you brought up, I kind of think there's a book by an anthropologist, I forget his name, but the book is called An Instinct for Dragons. And the argument in An Instinct for Dragons is that our fantasy of a dragon as this evil creature is a combination of the three biggest predators of primates. And those are big cats, uh, raptors, not velociraptors, but birds of prey, and uh, snakes. And if you combine those three, you get a dragon. So there, there, I think that there's there's this sort of idea that deep in horror novels and like Alex said, this is based on a tradition of horror, but sort of deep in the human psyche, there's something that is instinctively scared of snakes. A picture of a snake would make a baby cry. And, and, and also of big cats. That's another thing that people seem to be frightened of, like, automatically. So I think giving this thing claws is sort of giving it the, the most primordial shape that human fear can take that is concrete. Because when it's abstract, it's just free-floating anxiety. If you're going to make it concrete, sort of the most primordial basic way to do that is a predator. That's kind of my read of it. That makes that makes sense. I th that I understand. I think, yeah. Um, we should read this super chat from Rod. Um, uh, you want to do it? <laughs> you could do it. It's your show. Okay. All right. Uh, Rodwine, thank you for the uh, $4.99. Uh, Pose Haunted is one of my favorite albums ever. Her brother and her influenced each other when creating these pieces. I think you will enjoy the album. I'm looking forward to experiencing That's cool. it myself. <laughs> can I we, can I, I want to ask another question. Well, it's not really a question. I'm going to point something out and I hope that Caleb and Alex will enlighten me. Uh, about this what book is navison reading when he's stuck in the <laughs> in the house which then ceases to exist while he's, he's reading in the house. house of leaves maybe he's just sitting there thinking because the monster is the house is the book is navison is truant is the book house of leaves is you so i don't know maybe he's just sitting there thinking about stuff because he is a book <laughs> I, at that point, it's kind of hard to tell. This is the this brings it to mind again the idea that I had about the spiral staircase is that these things are securitists. They they fold back on each other, and I think that's why some of the footnotes at the beginning start doing that pretty early on, uh, is to get you used to this idea of things folding back on each other and why the spiral staircase is such an important part of the book. 
Now, I I did remember my question, and my question actually pertains to the the um, the staircase. One of my favorite parts is when the staircase extends with Navidson at the bottom, because he drops, you know, Tom drops a quarter at the top, and oh, you know how how long the staircase is based on how long it takes the quarter to drop, and it takes the quarter like fifty minutes the second the the final time, and it, it, the which meant the length of the staircase was longer than the earth is uh, entire diameter. Like it's so big. It, it, it goes beyond the earth. Uh, that's how big it is. And I was like wondering, like, what do you guys think of the staircase? And, and of moments like that, like, like what, what is your interpretation? I liked the interpretation in the book. I forget who said it, but uh, of the the not just the staircase, but the that space itself being a manifestation of the psychology of the person uh, dealing with it. Um, and so, and I guess that kind of fits in with Caleb's "the book is you" and blah 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 blah, right? Like, uh, and the, and the house is you and everything else, right? So that I came away with that being the only kind of trying to make sense of the nonsensical. That was the only thing that I was like, okay, well it's a manifestation of the psychology of the person dealing with the house. I find that part of the book kind of ironic because Navidson keeps like at the beginning, the reason why they buy the house in the first place is because uh, Navidson needs to stop going out or Karen is going to leave him. He needs to stop going on these adventures. And then they, he finds the adventure in his house and it's the most terrifying adventure that, and the most dangerous adventure he could possibly discover. And so he says he's going back in, he's going in to rescue people. But then as soon as he's alone at the bottom of the stairs, these stairs extend in a way that it makes it impossible for him to come home and his adventure gets to continue. And I, I feel like that speaks to the psychology, the house is you, because it's like there is a drive in Navidson to to explore, to to have these adventures and to some extent, the house is giving him what he wants in a terrifying way. But it's still giving him what he wants. I think uh, Kierkegaard makes this point that, or, or he says humans are a synthesis of finite and infinite, meaning you're finite, you're a material being, everything is concrete, but there's no end to the things you can conceive of. Inner space in some sense is infinite. And I think what's really driving Navidson nuts is the fact that, it, it, and, and existentialists talk about this a lot. There's something in me that is not commensurate with the outside world and is driving me nuts. I'm bigger on the inside. What's going on? Uh, so so I, I, I think in that sense, what, what's, what's wrong with Navidson is he's one of these people that gets lost in his own head and goes a little bit nuts, right? So if we're going to take the house is, is et cetera, et cetera, to, to, its, to its conclusion. So I think that, like, like that's why when he realizes it doesn't measure up, he has to make it right. He has to make the house accord with the outside and the outside accord with the house, which can never happen because the inside of the house is not the outside world. And it's that schism that just drives him completely nuts. And maybe he's not going insane, but drives him nuts in the colloquial sense that like it really bothers him. Um, and 
And you say, Alex, you point out that Navidson likes to explore, but I don't think it's just that he's some navel-gazing, you know, self-absorbed, egocentric person. I, I think Navidson really wants things to make sense, and it's just the fact that it doesn't add up is what throws him every time, and that's kind of the source of his obsession. Are you thinking is it, of though, something? Because I like Reston. I would, I would buy that being Reston's motivation. It doesn't add up. But Navidson's motivation seems different to me, not just that it doesn't add up, but like there's something unknown and I have to know it. Like there's there's something like I I and and also something that's new and no one else like he was bothered by what's his face that was gonna take that was gonna do the exploration. He wanted to be the one to go to go do that. It wasn't just like if Holloway had gone and figured it all out, I don't think that would have satisfied Navidson at all. Like Navidson wants to be the one to go. You're right. You're completely right. And and I totally get what you mean that the other guy would have been satisfied with it adding up because he's the, he, he's the guy where everything has to go into its box. And if it doesn't, he's going to explode. But Navidson yeah. is more like, you're right. He wants to explore. So maybe we could say that, Navidson wants to be the artist who creates an original work. Well, where do, where are artists supposed to get their original work? They reach inside into their well of mystic creativity or whatever and pull out a piece of art, which is what Navidson's trying to do. He's He wants to go into inner space and, and be the one who discovers the next crazy thing. So which is weird because of... it's in conflict with his what his wife wants, which is a great metaphor for a lot of relationships. She wants to kill the part of him that is basically what keeps him alive it's who he is right which is the explorer and it relates to her affairs because like she wants some other guy to go be the person that navidson actually is and wants to be uh you guys brought up like the unknown and one of the first um uh quotes that i posted on the social media for us was maturity one discovers has everything to do with the acceptance of not knowing uh you and i do think navidson has a serious problem with not being able to accept the fact that he cannot know everything he cannot capture everything notice he's he's got cameras everywhere like in that house, they're everywhere. Everyone who goes anywhere has to have a camera on them in, in the exploration. Like everyone, there's cameras everywhere because he has to capture it and it has to be seen and known and quantified and in through his lens, his expertise is the, is the lens. So I find that kind of hilarious that it's like, he has to get to a point where he cannot know things and be okay with that. And because while I do think his desire for exploration is fine, his his obsession, though, with trying to capture everything is not healthy. Um, and I do. And, and basically, the house has to smack him down with it and go, stop it. Like, <laughs> this is not a healthy thing for you to be doing, which is why I feel like by the end of the book, the person that's the most well off among any of the layers is Navidson. He actually grew uh, which I find hilarious. Now, in in uh, in in uh, uh, contrast to that, Johnny Truant gets worse, like completely worse. Um, 
But I, I just, I, I find that kind of interesting that that was like one of the first quotes that I've like really put out there for people to look at. <laughs> you know what I like about what you're saying is um, <clears throat> he's a photographer, right? And so, and he has, to, he has to know what's the worst possible thing for him to encounter a space that expands infinitely with corners everywhere where you can never exhaust it. And it's completely dark. So like, it's the absolute worst possible nightmare for someone who's got to be able to photograph everything and, and catch every corner. And the part where he grows at end is where he kind of lets go. And like, he loses all light. It's completely dark. There is nothing to capture. There's nothingness, right? Um, he really hits this kind of state of nothingness before he's able to then. And and the thing that rescues him is his wife, right? He hits this state of nothingness, and that's how he reconnects with his wife. Yeah, that's why I I felt like that was so important. And then um, on top of that, we brought up Holloway just like briefly, like you brought him up, Carter. The idea of this it's floor. He's literally like a mountaineer essentially, um, and like. A lot of people talk about Holloway because he he goes insane a hell of a lot faster than like anyone could have possibly anticipated. Um, and they and there's a chapter that goes over how Navidson and Holloway are alike um, to some regard. And I feel I find that really interesting because it's like the the space destroys Holloway. Like he he self destructs within the space, whereas Navidson like is trying to capture the space and trying and trying and trying. And it finally accepts the fact that he can't and that's how he gets out. Um, and like, what do you guys think Holloway's goals were that the house ended up destroying him? I kind of get the impression that Holloway is a sort of person who shouldn't be in there at all. Holloway, I feel like is this, a person with a very concrete sort of mind, not necessarily stupid, but very concrete very practical, uh, not the kind of person who does well with all this existential stuff. And when you drop him into this well of of hoofy-floofy subjectivity, he goes berserk and starts shooting people. He can't take the fact that there's nothing to grab onto here. You know, he's used to things he can deal with, things that he can touch and see and count. And when you put him into this void, he just, he can't take it. He's not meant to do this. And the fact that Navidson's wife likes him, like you said earlier, Carter, her infidelity is mirrored by the fact that she wants this guy to go in instead of Navidson, but Holloway is, or wants Holloway to go in instead of Navidson, but Holloway is not right for it. And I, I don't know. I, I think that that's, I, I, that that's the impression I get is that Holloway is a guy who's all gung-ho about it, but he's not cut out for it. The one you other know, thing I, I wanted to say oh, sorry. Just, uh, Could, regarding – go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to comment on Holloway. So if you're going to keep going, go keep going. Okay. Second thing was, uh, this is also Carter in response to something else you said, the fact, or, or I'm sorry, Alex, this one is to Alex. When you made the, you, when you made the observation that he's got cameras everywhere and everything has to be captured. I think again, that's sort of an artistic thing. Uh, composers and various other artists like Kubrick. Kubrick wasn't a composer, he was a director, but Kubrick is a great example of this. Somebody for whom every single last thing has to be completely perfect. A lot of them are control freaks to create their masterpiece, but his his control freakery can't create a masterpiece. He has to accept that this is a thing that is bigger than him, even if it's inside of him. 
Is it actually Cubic was, wasn't he one of the only ones in the interviews? Now I can't find where it is. Wasn't he he was he was one of the only ones in the interview that I liked what he said. He kind of like shrugged some stuff off. I don't remember, but he's in here. It's interesting that you brought him up. I about Holloway, I want to say I think he um I think Holloway's issue when you say concrete bound, I I view Holloway as is eminently goal oriented and you can't be goal oriented in a space where like think about what he was. He's not just an explorer. They didn't make him an explorer who like is a seafaring explorer or whatever. He like climbs mountains and reaches the tops of things, right? Um and like there's a there's a clear definite ending, there's a clear goal that can be accomplished and this space is his ultimate nemesis. There is no possible goal to have in a space that's infinite that changes. You can't. There is no goal. Um, and I think, you know, Navidson is much more uh, amenable to the idea that there actually is no goal here because he gives up trying to even go back. He's like, well, I'm just going to keep going. Like, there's no – I'm just going to keep, like, going and going and going and, like, I kind of – I'm not going to achieve much, but I'm just going to keep like he kind of gives up on the goal. Holloway is a phony explorer. Holloway is a phony explorer in the sense that he's phony in the sense that for him, this isn't about exploration. It's about conquest. But this can't be conquered. It can only be explored. Navidson is the real explorer. Because he's not about, he doesn't want to conquer anything. He just wants to see. He's a person who's actually an explorer. Holloway is, for him, this is a dick sizing thing. And that's why he goes nuts because there's nothing, there's no measuring tape to measure his dick with in here. No, that's a great point because even he's not, he's not an explorer because this is the 1990s. There's not a mountain that hasn't been climbed or, or like he's a guy who goes out and conquers things, but there's things that other people have seen and other people have done. And there's nothing, there's nothing new. He doesn't have to face uh, something that no one's ever faced before. He, he only has to face things that for which there are diagrams and Sherpas and maps and he can go accomplish, but he doesn't have to open a door to an infinite hallway and figure out his way. So the only real challenges left are the ones within. Yeah, which Navidson is much more able to eventually deal with. By the way, the Kubrick thing on my copy, at least, is page 363 if you were trying to find it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what, what I mean, why I'm, oh yeah, the, he's like, he's the only one when she's asking everyone uh, to like about the movie, he's just like, I've said enough. Like, I'm sorry. I can't, I've said enough. Like he doesn't have a, he just really, he's the only one that kind of doesn't want to pontificate too much about it. He's like, well, it is what it is. It's a, if it's a film, I've said enough the end. I also like how he trashes it at first and talks about all the things wrong with it and goes, that being said, I'm really impressed. I haven't had a dream yeah. about this. <laughs> it almost sounds like something Kubrick would actually say. It's, it, it's, it's, that's the other thing is he captures a lot of these people really well. Uh, like, like 
if you've ever read anything by Douglas Hofstadter, him reacting by going, oh, here, let me explain infinity. I'm pretty sure if you asked Douglas Hofstadter what he had for breakfast, he would, he would start explaining transfinite cardinals to you. <laughs> so, I want to I bring up the part where Tom is alone at the top of the staircase. Because a lot of this has to do with how it versus the end of Holloway's uh, tapes, um, because I feel like these are this is a great contrast because a lot of a lot of people contrast Holloway to Navitson. But uh, there's this point where Tom is alone in the space. He can't hard like he can sometimes talk to Karen on the radio because he's close enough that the radio can connect to the living room. But he mostly talks to himself the whole time, uh, telling jokes, uh, doing like little, you know, shadow puppets and stuff. And, and it's kind of like a way of like dealing with his fear. Cause he's terrified this whole time. Like you can kind of hear it, uh, in the things he says, but, um, versus like hallways talking to himself at the end of his tape and basically every he's not deep what he's, what he's not dealing with is the outside what he's actually dealing with is how like upset he is with himself uh there's a lot of like self-hatred in that moment which makes sense because he's about to shoot himself but yeah like there's it, it, this nice contrast between the two like tom's levity to uh deal with the space and his fear of it versus hallway's self-hatred taking over and not letting him deal with the space anymore um, because, uh, and there's this thing where people talk to themselves uh, like a lot, like they say smart people tend to talk to themselves, like whether or not anyone's around it's verbalizing helps you think. Um, so people tend to like verbalize whether or not, uh, whether or not there's anyone around to like think about things and to, and to handle emotions and stuff like that. So I feel like we see this really nice, uh, good coping mechanism for dealing with the fear in the space versus hallway on his path to self-destruction. And I, I, I wanted to bring that up because I just felt like that that's a really great contrast between the, those two characters who you would think might be somewhat similar because Tom is much more concrete. Although I have yeah, to jump in for just a second and say that Holloway is Holloway. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, Holloway is Holloway. Yeah, that's a good. That's what I was thinking I just, earlier. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that Tom, the other thing Tom does aside from talk to himself is poke fun at the monster. He tries to make fun of the monster that he's terrified. He's like the thing that terrifies him. He decides to try and make a joke out of and mock, um, which seems to me like a fundamental difference between how Holloway Holloway is like the thing that terrifies him. He brings a rifle to. And tries to find and shoot. And Tom's like, I'm going to mock you with shadow puppets. Well, and then also Tom is uh, somewhat on the same level as Johnny Truant. Like a little bit. Like he, because he does, he uses alcohol and um, marijuana as like a way of disconnecting from reality uh, quite often. Um which is like that quote that where I bring in where he um, he's he drank a whole fifth and then most of a bottle of wine um, went because he's pretty sure he's never going to see his brother again. Um, and he and he was just got out of this like really terrifying space 
um, and survived, but he, he feels the need to drown himself outside of reality. Um, and I find like, it's really important to notice how much Tom is like Holloway and actually like Johnny Truant. Um, Tom to me is one of the more interesting characters in this book because, and I don't feel like a lot of people like really focus on him that much, but cause he's, he uses those things, but he's also not completely aimless or, uh, useless. Uh, he, he can man up and like do the things he needs to do, uh, if, if called upon, and I find that like is very important to note that his, his existence in this book uh, while still being someone who wants to escape from reality quite often. He's the only true hero by his actions, really. I, gu- I guess you could say Navidson had some heroic moments. He he helped uh, Reston and stuff, but like Tom, Tom is the hero. I would agree with that, actually. <laughs> I'm still not. Con- I'm still not convinced. I'm. I have to leave soon, so I want to. I want to get this out and just say, I'm still not convinced that uh, this entire thing isn't just Johnny Truant. This is supposed to be just Johnny Truant. Like, not like Lude doesn't exist. Maybe even Zimpano doesn't exist. Maybe he does, but like that. Still on a DID with Johnny. <laughs> Or there's just like there was some scraps of stuff left and Johnny just made it into something that just it wasn't right. Just he just. This is all I don't know. It's all it's all Johnny. I I made the argument that Johnny, well, there's a level where he's being driven insane by Zampano's book. There is also a level wherein you can think that this is all just schizophrenia coming on because he's the right age. He has family history. So to me, I feel like that is a very um, legitimate interpretation of what is going on here is that it is all just Johnny. Johnny's losing his mind. Uh, And it is, it's his schizophrenia coming on Um, and which could be worsened by drugs and alcohol, by the way. So like (laughs) (laughs) I, and uh, whether or not he gives them up, which he does. And and, uh, there's this, it it wouldn't change the fact that he has schizophrenia. which is one of the reasons why he's like, he so often he has these moments where he essentially hallucinates things, including himself doing stuff. And it's not, it doesn't happen. And it's like, mm-hmm. you could say that this is an over imagination, over imagination uh, because the book is freaking him out. But I don't really think that's the answer. I think the answer is actually that he's schizophrenic. If- well, cause his mom does the exact same thing, like hallucinates that she's done horrible things when she hasn't. So if Zampano is real within this world, what were the the scratches that were? Where were they? Were they on his body or on the floor? I forget where they were on the floor floor. next to his body. And but that is never explained. No. Okay. This isn't a mystery in the sense. This is why everyone's like. There's there's no like you can't have a spoiler. This is not the kind of thing where I thought I thought when I started this book. Alex, I thought it was going to be like, if there's a clue here and I'm going to read this and I'm going to notice this over here and I'm going to figure out the butler did it. But like, no, it's like, oh, this is a confusing pile of mess. Yeah. And it's supposed to be. 
Which is interesting. Yeah, I kind of, so I like it for that. But then I also want a book that is like all these things are intentionally here to like try and piece together. So, so another book club, I would like someone suggest that too. But I'll say, oh, since Carter, you have to leave. One thing I was looking at the Haunted Poe album and the track listing is not even just five and a half minute hallway. Exploration B is on there. Uh, there's a Dear Johnny, House of Leaves. Like these are uh the names of the song so it's definitely pretty on the nose yeah yeah it it's uh i'm super in, i've i'm looking at it right now I'm, it's, uh, i know could have gone what? mad is one of the names <laughs> of the song oh yeah yeah i think it's important to note that when uh when nevinson first gets lost in the hallway the thing that gets him out and caleb brought up the echoes is actually his daughter like family is the thing that like mm -hmm. an emotional human connection is the thing that gets you out of the space. Like almost every time, like if you survive the space, it's because of human contact. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to the Heidegger. That goes back to the Heidegger thing where it, when you're, you know, when design is separate from the they self, that is other people is when this anxiety starts and yes, creativity can come out of it because you get weird when you're alone. Isolated cultures are weird even but then as soon as you're connected with somebody, that's what will pull you out. What were you going to say, Beverly? Uh, I forget. I, I guess uh, if maybe it's similar. Like with even like the, if you have spiral, I haven't gotten to the stairs yet of that. But like if you're spiraling, like if you're spiraling emotionally or something, I don't know how figurative it's supposed to be. But but I think that, yeah, whenever and it's, and it's dark, too. So like when you're alone in darkness, then like what helps you out, though, is like, uh, you know, other people to help pull you back into to reality. I think for the most part, the book is about it is has this idea that like the thing that gets you out of this idea of subjective reality is human contact, like because, you know, multiple humans will help you put bounds around reality. Um, you know, if they're not also crazy, uh, right, like if they're not Johnny Truant's mother yeah. or something like that, you know, like you need you need other human beings to escape this subjective reality, to escape the inconceivable. Um, other other humans help you relate to the world. And, um, and I find that kind of like one of the great brilliances of the story. But if you have people who enable you, that's what we were talking about on Thursday with what is a woman when you just have all of these other people who will have their own subjective realities and they'll allow you like, then you're just going to be. They're enabled. pushing you down the staircase. Yeah, yeah they're like shoving <laughs> you down there. You guys are convincing me the more we, this conversation goes on, the more I'm like, maybe Caleb was right. What's the, where's the Heidegger quote at the beginning of this? <laughs> what page is this on, Caleb? Let me consult my notes, sir. Uh, 25. All right. Right at the outset. Yeah, and the funny thing is he, that's the one place where he says, yeah, this is bullshit, and that's the one that's not bullshit. <laughs> or, that's what I think. Oh, the Maybe uncanny one? Yeah. Which uncanny in German is unheimlich, meaning unhomelike, or if you like, unhouselike. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this one. Huh. Carter, if you, you can read it out loud if you want. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, sure. In anxiety, one feels uncanny. Hear the peculiar indefiniteness of that which 
die I can never say does dasin design 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 I used to say dasien but that's not doesn't look right at all design okay that which design finds itself alongside an anxiety comes proximately to expression the nothing and nowhere but here uncanniness also means not being at home some German I'm not going to say. In uh, our first indication of the phenomenal character of Dasein's basic state, and in our clarification of the existential meaning of being in as distinguished from the categorical signification of insideness. Being in was defined as residing alongside, being familiar with. This character of being in was then brought to view more concretely through the everyday publicness of the they, which brings tranquilized self-assurance, being at home, with all its obviousness, into the average everydayness of Dasein. <clears throat> On the other hand, as Dasein falls, anxiety brings it back from its absorption into the world. Everyday familiarity collapses. Dasein has been individualized, but individualized as being in the world, being in enters into the existential mode of the not at home. Nothing else is meant by our talk about uncanniness. I can see why Johnny was like, see, crack existed. But um, <clears throat> but there's also an element here that I think we're supposed to take seriously, given everything else that we've just discussed in the rest of the book. Well, and maybe the reason why, like, Johnny Truant says we shouldn't take it seriously, that it's BS, that it's crack-induced or whatever. But maybe one of the reasons why Johnny doesn't make it through this is because he doesn't take something like that seriously. And the experience that he has afterward in that very footnote is that concept that Heidegger just gave. It's basically, oh, you know that concept? Here's what that feels like. And then he has an experience of exactly what Heidegger just said. Uh, um, but yet German academia had this thing for a long time where obscurantism, maybe they still do it. I don't know, but like there, there are people like Heidegger and, uh, and well, Hegel and God's kind of pretty like, yeah. Well, yeah. And you know, you have Habermas who writes in this just like ridiculously impenetrable bureaucratic drone. And I'm like, I, I feel like they made people read Habermas as a condition of entry into academia. Like how much of this can you put up with? Yeah. <laughs> But listen, yeah. guys, I would love to keep going, but I've got to I've got to run. So I'm going to drop off. But uh, this has been a pleasure. And Caleb, thank you for your insights. And Alex, I don't know what to say about this book. <laughs> but, you said a lot. <laughs> yeah, thank you for introducing it to, to me. It is effed up. That's my you can put that on the back cover. This book is effed up. Uh, Beverly, I hope Fox don't eat any more goose. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I think I would like to wrap up soon, actually. Mm -hmm. But I, um, I just want to say that, like, this is one of this book is so hated. Like, it's either <laughs> loved or it's hated. Right. If you go to the Goodreads reviews and you went to the one star reviews, someone called it the Marmite of books, which Marmite is famously known as being loved or hated. Like, there is no like, eh, I can take it or leave it. But no, like. People love this book. Like me and Caleb apparently love this book. <laughs> and then um, some people just hate it. They absolutely cannot stand it. And I don't think that hatred is entirely misplaced or unuseful to what this book is trying to do because of the fact that it is trying to show you that this kind of 
thinking pattern is bad. Right. Like, and, <laughs> and so like, if you hate it, that means you're like, you're on the right path. And I, I just like one of them, I think that was a one word review. It said illegal. <laughs> I, 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 I will actually disagree somewhat. I, I mostly agree, but the slight disagreement is this thinking pattern is not necessarily bad. It's dangerous, which is not exactly the same as bad. And I literally That's just fair. quoted Foucault, please shoot me. <laughs> fair. Uh, I, I find that a fair interpretation. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I love, there's a, I love books and, and fiction and scenes, even in movies and TV shows that do a lot, that have a lot of layers to them that are trying to, like they do plot work, they do character work, and then they do thematic work. I feel like most of the time this book manages to do all of them all the time. Uh, which I really appreciate because I don't feel like there's a lot of people might say there's some wasted space here. I don't think that's true. Um, so I know it's long. I know it can be considered tedious, but I think everything is where it should be. And as it should be, um, uh, I, I, that doesn't mean you have to like it, <laughs> but that's why I love this book. I, um, I do like the idea of of having to where it's like oh see go to this page kind of th- I like the the interactive and in, interactiveness for it but but it you it requires like a further step too because it just says go to appendix such and such I'm like okay well what page is that like you didn't give me an actual page so now I have to go and find where what the page number was to go here and and then you're bouncing around though so I'm like I want just a little bit of that. Cut, cut out in between where you just tell me directly which page to go to. But I similarly, actually, even though I like the concept, I didn't like it for uh, campaign books for D&D. Uh, the first time I was trying to DM a campaign, it made you do that. It was like, learn this stuff in chapter two. But if you're going to choose this, then go over here to chapter six and then go to chapter three, four. And I was just like, this is too much to like not know the world enough so, and then I was like scrap it I'm gonna make my own thing because it's all in my head so I know exactly like what what if the choices that they make I have the characters like my own characters in my head so I can answer instead of like having to read through like okay what is this book gonna tell me to do so I didn't like it for that but I think just a regular story I like it all right so any uh like last minute thoughts on the book I think it's really funny that this book makes fun of academic over analysis, but then invites you to do exactly that. Like it's like it's taunting you like, come on, what does this mean? You know, yeah. what does this mean? What does this mean? It, 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 it's funny because he's waving. This is like Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown and then pull it out of the way as soon as he tries to kick it. That's what this is sort of the intellectual equivalent of that. I think it's really fun. All right. So uh, we uh, well, thank you guys for joining me. I really appreciate it for taking the time. Uh, even if you didn't finish it, it's hard no matter how many pages you get into it. Um, but I really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to say um, that I, I'm glad that anyone came here like on Father's Day to watch this and take part in this live stream, even in chat. I really appreciate it. And um, happy Father's Day, by the way. And it's uh, Juneteenth. Yeah. Freedom Day or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Uh, <laughs> it should be probably Emancipation Day. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> uh, um, 
So tomorrow there's a narrative dissonance, right? Um, yeah, I think it's Megan Fox and Juliet Truthseeker. Okay. Uh, and then uh, there's a 451 degrees uh, uh, pre-recorded um, video about a author who was canceled on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, I don't know what's going on Wednesday. I assume stuff. <laughs> I assume stuff too. I, <laughs> I, I think I should be rebel civics, but I need to see if all if the videos and everything were uploaded to okay, me. Okay. I have a lot of work to do in the next couple of days. <laughs> okay, and then total minority thoughts. report on third. Uh, yeah, dangerous, dangerous thoughts, thoughts Wednesday night. Wednesday night, and, and then, then token minority report Thursday. Thursday. And our next book is Fossil Future, I believe, led by Carter. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think so. I, yes. <laughs> Carter, Carter is definitely leading something. Did we? I don't know if we have a date for it. I can't remember. I don't believe we do have a date yet for it. Um, okay. But yeah. That is yeah. the the book, though. Um, but that uh, that's everything. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us again. Thank you for you know everyone who showed up for the <laughs> for the discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, and if you could, you know, walk your fingers over to the like, share and subscribe buttons, we would really appreciate that too. Um, I know it's a long live stream, but book club usually is. So thank you guys so much. Oh, and, uh, I, am going to go ahead and take this opportunity. I have my own channel. Look up Caleb oh, yeah, Pierce. You, you see me in the chat there. So, uh, yeah, go like, subscribe to me too. If you like his pontificating, go ahead. <laughs> it can be fun. Yeah. yeah. Said, and Caleb beers, right? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hang on. I think I found, is this you? I'm just going to put this up. Yeah, that sounds like you. I'm going to put it in chat. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, okay. All right. Well, thank you. I need to find the end credits. <laughs> yes. We just need right. to do that and we're done. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Happy Bye. Father's Day. Bye. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations sanitization center immediately. Association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, 
scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.